I'm so popular, and today we are continuing my Volker Mord trilogy of episodes concerning art produced in and concerning the Holocaust. Uh, last week we discussed the Diary of Anne Frank and Suspiria. This week we are discussing Bob Fosse's fabulous 1972 film Cabaret and Mishima Yukio's play My Friend Hitler. And I'm joined by two returning guests. Who are you? I'm Josh from Evil Thespian, one of the co-hosts of Evil Thespian. <laughs> uh, and I'm Maddie, uh, co-host of Evil Thespian. What are you two doing? I'm, uh, I'm sitting. <laughs> yes, and I'm, I'm drinking some water because I've been trying to hydrate as much as I possible mm-hmm. for this episode. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. these... Spending basically a month of my life uh, doing nothing but thinking about Hitler and Nazism and the Holocaust and that's heavy. It's it takes that. It is depressing, (laughs) and I have caught myself like getting like wrapped in emotion um, all the time. I'll just be at work or eating or walking around, and I will suddenly feel phantoms and memories of the Holocaust rise up inside of me. It's very psychotic. I'm unnerved. I, I really um, connected with your episode with Masha. I Not that it's the same, but my grandfather was a cook in the Korean War, uh-huh. which is mostly just kind of a joke because that's literally George Costanza's uh, character <laughs> <laughs> line. Uh, but um, yeah, something about having a very, somebody close to you who was in this strange, uh, part of history that you only kind of know about in like this ghostly manner that you can only like, be in touch with in your imagination. It's very strange. It is very, <laughs> very strange. And it's weird. You know, on the sirens for Patreon, I've been talking to my mom about um, her relationship with her father and, uh, yeah, I guess just at the moment I'm ambiently surrounded by the Holocaust closing in and on me at all angles, like in cabarets. So I'm quite distraught, mm-hmm. but I'm very glad to have both of you here to um, mm-hmm. work through this uh, unfolding story mm-hmm. with me. But I've been asking... We're happy to be here. I'm very happy to have <laughs> you. I've been asking my guests um, for the course of this trilogy, what is your relationship with the Holocaust? How do you two relate with it? What's your story with this historical event we're all touched with in some fashion well for me my my grandmother who just passed away uh grew up in england during world war ii and so throughout my childhood i just heard a bunch of stories about how she had to take a gas mask to school every day and not knowing what could possibly happen 
um, and like having to do air raid drills and her her ration book and all that type mm -hmm. of stuff. And um, and then also on a I have a this, I share the same birthday with Anne Frank, and so I I had a, a childhood obsession with Anne Frank. And um, I, I, my senior year of high school, I saw a production of the Diary of Anne Frank. And um, at the end, when they storm into the, the annex, um, the, the annex just kind of collapsed in on itself and was like destroyed and raided. And, um, but nobody like actually like came on stage. It was just like this weird, like, I don't know. It was, just, and there were bangs going on and it was just like, it has stuck with me to this very day and um mm -hmm. so i i've had that that's my connection to the but that's really the interesting that they chose to yeah. depict it that way because i feel like the end of the diary with that just full stop nothingness this sudden eruption of oblivion that just completely erases and deletes their entire universe in one second i feel like that is a, a beautiful way of staging it and i didn't get to mm -hmm. talk about that play but the play is amazing it's like a high school it's theater jarring. classic but it is really <laughs> mm -hmm. wonderful because it's very, all told yeah. through memory so it's uh, it's very yeah. you know it's all just the memories of of Otto frank kind of like reading through the diary um mm -hmm. so it, it it does feel very you know um metaphysical in that Absolutely. way I guess. Yeah. maddie what's your yeah. relationship with the holocaust well it's in it's weird growing up i was very profoundly influenced culturally by Jewish uh, principles and, and the Jewish value system. Um, not because my family is Jewish, but I grew up um, north side of Chicago and in Milwaukee. I grew up um, going to Shabbat dinners with my childhood friend. And um, I kind of, I mean, to quote Lena, Lena Dunham, like I, my whole world was like wasps and Jews. And uh -huh. um, I have just always, Jewish culture has always been um, a part of my life. And Judaism has been a part of my life in some way, shape or form. I'm too, I would never, I don't know. I, I could never convert because I'm too lazy for that. And, but <laughs> I, um, it's always been a part of my life uh, in some way. And I think as a child, you just have these ex cultural experiences and you're not really able to contextualize them and intellectualize them until you're an adult. And then you kind of realize, wow, this is something very special that was a part of my life that I got to be exposed to. Um, and you, you learn about like these sort, you learn about the Holocaust as a child, um, but it's not until you're a fully formed adult where you're able to look back in retrospect and put it, things in perspective. And um, it's very, it's very strange to like wake up one day and like think about all of those, the, the like these special um, like rit rituals mm -hmm. throughout the week and like these holidays. Um, I always felt learning about the Holocaust, there's sort of a missed opportunity to like learn about Judaism like the hol we learned so much about like Hitler and you know the, the, all the different countries and the migrations and the diaspora but not so much the 
cultural, um, like the value system and the holidays and like all of those things. Um, I just like look back on my education system, like, wait, why didn't we not like learn about, the, you know, the uh, Torah, you know, mm -hmm. I guess it's like a polya thing where it's like, you know, we should read biblical, like Abrahamic mm. texts to understand our um you know religious ideological landscape and those things all connect in history um so yeah part of me i feel very sentimental and it's a very bittersweet feeling kind of mm -hmm. to look back on those times in my life yeah, yeah i also was really enchanted with judaism um because it was mm -hmm. very foreign to me um and i remember discussing like funny girl with my mom and like mm -hmm. Barbara Streisand being like this like Jewish alien creature that is like so dazzling and unique yes. and full of overpowering mm -hmm. life and it's shocking for you know just little old me to like come across that stuff and yeah. Judaism is really so special and confounding it mm -hmm. it I find it's been essentialized in like online discourse and the way people i don't even know where to go with this like obviously there's so much anti-semitism that continues to be popular this kanye west stuff it like the relationship people have with judaism is so bizarre but to me it's always been this fascinating art movement of extremely mm -hmm. strong characters like Larry Kramer and Barbara Streisand and Philip Roth, yes. like yeah. these people have enchanted me forever. And uh, there is a really missed opportunity in the Holocaust and remembering it and learning about history to also learn about the beauty and glamour of Jewish culture. Oh my gosh. I always say like to, to quote a uh, friend Leibowitz, uh, Jew, uh, uh, theater is to Jews. Uh, what jazz is to blacks. Mm -hmm. That's what she says. And, um, the <laughs> whole that. reason like uh, theater and like drama and like dot dramaturgy is able to be uh, voc a vocation that one can like explore is like primarily uh, due to kind of the um, Jewish um, like vaudeville you know, culture the, and yeah mm -hmm. like the the people who like kind of um, pioneered um, th those things um and the practices and the text and the the education um and curriculum part of it mm -hmm. um and yeah it's it's literally it, it's something i've always it's it, judaism is like so inescapable to me because i just my friends my family i have jewish like uh, people in my circle and also it's just growing up in the theater it's the main <laughs> uh, organ that like animates uh, the the community, like the theater community and the teachings and the, and everything. So um, it's all connected. Wow. Yes, because like Jew mm -hmm. Jewish people write some of the best show tunes that are in existence, mm -hmm. you know, and yeah. it just feels like such low hanging fruit, you know, for like someone like a Kanye West, you know, to do to like go for it anti-semitism yeah because he's and, not even know, doing it in an artful way mm -hmm. he's not even doing yeah, it yeah an and also way. also like i feel like it's not even like the old-fashioned kind of like anti-semitism like anti-semitism yes. like now when you see it in the media it's really corny and actually to uh -huh. me it's not even real i'm like you don't even know 
Like you haven't done your research. They don't like, even know because I I, I ask know. people oh. to explain to me when they like make jokes about like Jews and stuff like in like the racist group chats. Like I mm-hmm. will confront people and be like, "What actually is the great sin and evil of Jewish people that makes you want to rely on this like faux pas boring joke?" Like there, like you said, it's not even like classic anti-Semitism that seemed to like come from some you know contextually understood reason. It just is. Mm-hmm. Like, like a fucking meme and i it repulses me you know in some ways i'm kind of glad that kanye went on his anti-semitic bipolar meltdown episode (laughs) because it shows how unfashionable and ugly it is to be anti-semitic yeah it's it's very strange and it's very um it's this weird, weird thing that to me, it doesn't even exist anymore in like the true sense. It only exists in like a very removed, ironic mm-hmm. way. And I feel like if somebody was really um, anti-Semitic in that way, they would at least um, be able to be, be funny, you know, about it. I feel like at least there's usually like the old fashioned, like really hard, like there was at least like this strange thread of humor to it. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Now it's just like, if you want to be racist, like actually commit to the bit and like do the research. Mm-hmm. And it seems like yes. it's strange. And also, I feel like people have never met a Jewish person in their life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like they people, I, it's strange. People who like are anti-Semitic on the internet don't really have any connection or probably have never, to me, it seems like they've never met a Jewish person ever in their entire life or know kind of, of what the Jewish sensibility is or never felt that before. Um, and to me, it's just like, I don't even know what you're referencing. Like there's no references mm-hmm. really that come through. So yeah. Totally. Well, Very strange. we are really meeting a, a lot of confluences of things I care about in today's topic because um, we have this like sparkling world of Jewish culture that has uh, generated so much dramaturgy uh, and the theater is also, of course, the great landscape of the artistic homosexual. So mm-hmm. we have these Jewish, mm. these homosexual, and we have uh, Japanese and German influences all hurtling at each other. And I think we'll be able to um, find something fascinating here. But the first of our topics is My Friend Hitler, uh, Wagatomo Hitora by Mishima Yukio. It's a play that he um, wrote and performed in the last year of his life, in 1969, and it follows Adolf Hitler himself, along with uh, several of his uh, political confidants, Rome, Strasser, and Krupp, and they have a long, drawn-out political conversation that unfolds in uh, two acts, and I'm really interested in this play as kind of a static and sexualized approach to how this great fascist evil began to spin out of control and into the lives of millions. Uh, It's very plain clothes and understated, which is not something you would expect for a Mishima play about Hitler. Um, But I do find it to be very, like, texturally correct about how all of this happens, Mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. 
Yes. Yeah, it's, I, it's, mm, it's, sorry, Maddie, go ahead. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I was, uh, my initial uh, reaction to it, because it's so kind of drony and dry, I felt like on first read that it was sort of this like Mishima's love letter to Julius Rome. Um, I think he like had this like strange infatuation with uh, like the character of Ernst Rome um, mm. being like this like strange like uh, a doting gay figure mm-hmm. in in the during that time, um, and it's it's interesting I. Feel like he had like this like adoration for his character um as someone who's very loyal to uh the the party um and not just the party but almost his camaraderie his connection with um adolf hitler um that was something that came like very very clear to mm-hmm. me in the in the play what was your reaction josh yeah. well i mean i was Taken back, taken aback by um, how much often they talked about Hitler as an artist. Yes, mm-hmm. that really like shocked me because I mean he really like is kind of like an artist. I mean he tried to mm-hmm. inflict his vision onto the world. I mean and it was it was horrible and and it went awry. Mm-hmm. Um, but that really like took me aback and I mean it, and it does speak to like that will t- that you have to have as an artist to you know inflict it but like who are you going to throw yeah. under the bus mm-hmm. to get well you, you throw know? everybody under the bus because I also was thinking about when I was reading this I'm like oh yeah like to actually make such a huge in like uh, irrevocable uh, uh, p- impact on the world. You have to only care about your bottom line and nothing else. And that was sort of the dynamic between uh, Rome and Hitler. Is that you know Rome? Rome's bottom line is like his love and adoration and dedication and like blind loyalty to Hitler. And Hitler is like he, he all he cares is like his bottom line and the proliferation of like his political agenda mm-hmm. and um that that was something that was really on my mind because i was thinking like oh in theory like there's something romantic about the blind loyalty that ernst Rome has mm-hmm. for like his com- comrade or whatever mm-hmm. um and there's nothing really romantic about the blind loyalty hitler has to his political uh, like agenda but you can also argue that there's something a little pathetic also about like being so romantically involved with somebody because because he dies yeah <laughs> you know exactly. and it's like for for what like oh it's very romantic he would do anything for his friend and, and they you know the party is like but whatever um but yeah there is something kind of like sad and pathetic about it yeah i think i don't know that, i think that Mishima, despite the fact he played Hitler in a production of of this play, I think he does have a lot of identification with the Rome character because because this was at the very twilight of his life, right before he did his uh, fascist performance uh, and did his seppuku. This was about uh, six months before that. And he was pretty much a washed up queen at this point. And he knew that his sexual appearance was coming to an end. He was confronting the mortality of his uh, gay sex life and 
especially like in the Sea of Fertility tetralogy that he uh, mm-hmm. left on his uh, on death's door right before his suicide, you can really feel that like terror in him. And it's very strong mm-hmm. in this messy little play because Rome like running around like lapping at Hitler's heels remembering yeah. the beautiful days of them being strong and singing together during the revolution mm-hmm. um you certainly feel that Mishima is uh feeling uh, in a similar way about his homosexuality as Rome feels towards Hitler here yeah there's like a deterior deterioration mm-hmm. between the relationship because during this time in history their uh you know political uh relationship was like slowly like fraying and like unfurling and there was a lot of uh, tension and i think yeah i do sense like the like obsessive uh you know longing for one's youth and the a very romantic a uh, projection of a like youthful um like a doting youthful um uh, person that would literally do anything and i think um having loyalty to somebody and maybe sexual uh loyalty to something or someone it does give you something to do like it is it keeps you busy Uh and when that has expired Hmm. when that that uh you know facet of your identity is starting to like slowly wither away and expire you're like i don't have anything to do now and what what must what should i do if that was something that was the main driver of my whole life, mm-hmm. um, what does one do when that's like slowly, you, you know, you're doing the sundown, you know? Um, it's very existential, yeah. Yeah, Josh, I'm really interested in your takeaway from how much this focuses on like Hitler the artist, because I was very cognizant of that myself. Um, and he's referred to as a great artist in terms of his uh, speech and his ability to move and direct people um, through the will of his charisma alone. And there's a really beautiful line from him um, where he describes a rain that has begun after uh, one of his speeches. And he says, <clears throat> as soon as the rain darkened the plaza, people disappeared from every bench. What a tasteless, vacant plaza. Not a single soul left. I can't believe that until a moment ago, crowds filled it, heating the whole place with roaring cheers and applause. A plaza after a speech is like the blank drowsing of a madman after spasms. Human beings endlessly mm. hurt other human beings. Every cloak of power has seams through which fleas get in. Herr Krupp isn't their power like unbattered white armor, which no one can possibly damage. You can feel like this drive to recreate the world, and it's really lovingly characterized in Hitler. Definitely. And like it's just it's so scary how addicting that 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 feeling is. You know, once you taste it, that that sense of influence, how it's so hard to like let that go and you just want to keep you just want to keep going mm-hmm. with it, you know? I keep thinking about him staring into this, like, empty plaza that had just been reformed by his speech alone and his uh, pillaging forward to reimagine the world. This is something I'm trying to, like, pick apart because 
a fundamental part of Nazism is the idea of this great sweeping motion of reforming Europe and society and the world Mm. into one person's vision. And I have a lot of respect for people who have that strong sense of desire. Like, I feel like my show has that, like, Nazi aesthetic of, like, I'm going to, like, forcibly recreate everything, like, through these Mm -hmm. conversations. And picking the line in which it becomes evil and horrifying and where it's something admirable is very frightening for me. It it is... Okay, so I'm glad that you said that because (laughs) something that's very interesting, like, people who... Uh, activate their will to power Mm -hmm. in a way that's so focused and so acutely concentrated. Sometimes I think when you become conscious of your impact on people and your influence, it does kind of scare you. I've been a little scared, (laughs) like sometimes, and there is like a very fine line between um, being uh, afraid of it and but also being titillated by it and being addicted to it um and sometimes i think it's both a little bit and yeah. in other people i think it's been either one or the other perhaps in hitler's case completely um addicted and extremely stimulated and like hyper focused on his own uh the the enchantment that he has with his own um, ability to influence um and i think that goes for like any political figure really but Mm -hmm. i think as an artist it truly is like one of those things that that never stops you always have a relationship with this fine line (laughs) and there's a line or a scene where hitler's talking about rome calling him an artist and he talks about the difference between him and rome is that rome was a soldier and hitler was an artist and Rome didn't have a vision and so therefore like he was able to not see that he was going to be killed you know he didn't know yeah. that he was going to get very blind thrown. yeah yes and, and and like that and that might be the 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 difference you know is like if you can see bigger than yourself and and um that you can try to make over the world in that way yeah and it is terrifying to correctly understand that Hitler is an artist and Not in just the sense that he was, like, a failed painter and autist about architecture, but more Mm -hmm. so that he was able to wield the entire canon of European history in one bracing moment to accomplish something as severe and major as the Holocaust. Like, it is scary to recognize that that is an artistic gesture. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, he was... Everybody is sort of a curator, you know, uh, whether, you know, if he's a failed painter or if he's uh, not a handyman or he doesn't really have a a craft, Mm -hmm. like like a tactile craft, um, the logical conclusion is to just default to be uh, become a, a curator, a p- political curator, mm-hmm. a curator of your own taste and aesthetic uh, principles. Um, and it's very, very strange to like watch uh, the domino effect of someone who has such a, a, a autist, aut- autistic, like powerful, <laughs> um, very, very potent. Um, and also he's, I think everybody who is able to be successful usually is 
that and a good curator and a good orator mm -hmm. you can't really make an impact if you're not a good orator i i watch a lot of if you watch a lot of like old uh videos of mussolini he's his gesticulations are just so yeah. huge like insane and um same with like hitler just so a performer a, an orator um the, the consonants the vowels <laughs> um the movement and like the pushing of the breath that like em emits from one's body. Um, you can always tell like who is really going to be um, is getting uh, onto something, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> um, I always think of um, when Lady Gaga was performing in Russia at the Born This Way Ball and she oh, was like, man. arrest Putin. <laughs> like it felt very like 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 a Hitler speech. Almost. Uh -huh. was, oh, was, yeah, was... I, I feel that uh, <laughs> way about her speech. Like the don't ask, don't tell uh, year. Yes, when she was like, too. are yes. you listening? Yeah. Yeah. Lady Gaga is absolutely like <laughs> Hitler-esque. Great. Great. <laughs> yes. mm -hmm. I mean, David Bowie was like one of the first, you know, musicians to understand that like his influence over people was like scary and bizarre. And he was very discontent with it. Like um, Rebel Rebel is like a song like making fun of like the people who went to see his shows and would get worked up into a you know, a frenzy over his music. And so when he kind of cast himself as a Nazi as well, like every artist has to start contending with this. And it's yeah. crucial to understand Hitler that way. And especially as a human artist who is like affected and touched by the same sexuality and um, daily horrors that we all are. You know, I know people like to characterize him as like some kind of like, terrifying like genetic freak uh people like to say he has a micro penis um but i really mm. find mishima's depiction of him to be a very dignified and sees him with real flesh if that makes sense mm -hmm. yeah he yes. breathes life into the otherwise uh depicted as like strange lifeless character mm -hmm. Um, he kind of just brings like this very uh, commonplace like fleshiness into into the writing of the character. Mm. Well, and the play is written in neo in a neoclassical style, so it's very like succinct and clear, and everything is out like outlined and and yeah, that, and I guess like in a sense like neoclassical tragedy, like uh, Rome is a kind of tragic figure in the sense that he's blinded by his his loyalty to, to his Hitler. desire his desire yeah, mm -hmm. for power. yeah yeah and i really like the idea of taking hitler off of the pedestal and approaching him like sexually and uh as this you know person victim to the same wills as everyone else because the moment that you start aggrandizing him into a monster or uh, mm -hmm. you you have to take him seriously and approach him as another human being or else none of this has any meaning because it's divorced from reality and just given the status of concept. Yes, because yeah. then you don't realize that Hitler lives within all of us. Yeah, yeah and it, if you want to understand somebody who ostensibly, if you met in real life, you would want to take them down. The, I mean, the only way to kind of manipulate somebody and um, analyze like their power and their motivation mm -hmm. is to identify the um, things that bring, uh, you know, 
unite us, which is alienation mm -hmm. and being in a human body um, and mm. having pathologies and understanding those. Um, that's truly like the only way to really understand. And if you do, if you want to gr aggrandize somebody um, like you have to also see yourself as like a contemporary or like a, po a possible, uh, you know, precursor mm -hmm. to somebody's like pathological narcissism or something, um, almost like as kind of like a warning or something. Um, but yeah, very spooky. Very spooky indeed. And the interesting thing about this play, I, I think I mentioned already, it's quite dull. It's very boring. It's <laughs> yeah. just four characters um, kind of debating philosophy with each other as uh, some organizations of how Hitler is going to ascend to the presidency and how he is going mm -hmm. to uh, wield these forces that he's just come into contact with. It's a lot about that, but I think what gives this uh, status is, I think, a, a good, very interesting play is that it also tracks the human Hitler and his slow... Uh, degradation or evolution, whichever way you want to see it, into the concept that we've talked about and into this, mm -hmm. you know, intense, uh, non-human, like, will and force of, like, torrenting wind that you see mm -hmm. as uh, he eventually selects to assassinate um, Rome at the end of Act Two. Uh, we finally, like, see him, like, elevate into this uh, great artistic wind, Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It, <laughs> it's yeah, so it's hard like to be this, articulate about this. It is, <laughs> no, it it is, and it's like this strange climax of uh, one's uh, like the, like the apex of uh, somebody's um, char character arc. And I was thinking a lot about how the it was like 1934 after. Um, uh, Julius Rome died the year after there was like this great slew of homosexual persecution in Germany and there were mm -hmm. laws that were amended to make the crackdown on uh, just looking at another man with uh, you know a sexual desire uh, is was like completely um, you know like you couldn't take it back um anybody like ostensibly accused of being um having homosexual tendencies um were imprisoned and the, there was like a huge uptick in mm -hmm. <laughs> um yeah uh homosexual like persecution um and it's strange because it's almost like there was this like ghostly uh wave an aftershock of the relationship between Rome and Hitler almost um, that and that was sort of like a projection of it and like that's the end of the play it made me think a lot about that because it's very removed and Hitler's like this grand like concept but then the year following it, there's this like ghostly domino effect that occurs um, behind him mm -hmm. that's so mm -hmm. like chilling because I mean like there's the whole tradition of like homosexuality and like male friendship and camaraderie and just like you know to see that like all just like collapse in on itself is just really like terrifying and sad well i really like in the play when they were talking about the army <laughs> like it was uh corny kind of as it sounds i really loved the uh lyricism of their um like reminiscing about 
the army and like being together in the sense of brotherhood that they feel and like the bugles and the horns and they're running around and stuff. Um, it was very poetic. It is poetic. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, go ahead, Josh. Well, and I, I I like also how Rome like talks about the young muscle men mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. are like that are fighting for Hitler that he has at the palm of his hand. You know, I love. Yeah, that. me too. It when you approach the monstrosity of World War Two from this angle and you like let it like breathe with actual humanity, you do get like these very stunning images of like the entire army of men like underneath like Hitler's influence and these like beautiful shared moments of brotherhood and it's all so like sweet and uh, interesting and it's something that you feel like if you didn't know the the context behind this you would feel like this could almost be like a aspirational play yeah I really liked when he was talking about his uniform and how he's like hugging his jacket uh-huh. um that was so like there were some like very tender moments when they like intimately take Hitler's measurements uh, on his body when he's like dressing in the uniform. Yeah, it's very human and tender. Mm-hmm. But then it sweet. all ends. Then it all ends in assassination, and mm-hmm. and then Hitler. <laughs> final words of the play are that yes, government must take the middle road. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. it's so like it's just so strange and and weird yeah yeah like that's like his and that's like his bottom line and i was thinking uh so after reading this play i was thinking like you know why do we have blind loyalty towards people who we intellectually know have a bottom line and it does make you uh like use cases like these do make you think about um, your own relationships, like whose bottom line is implicated by me mm-hmm. and my time and my loyalty. And um, it's very, it, it makes you paranoid almost. <laughs> mm. It know? is. And that idea that yes, government must take the middle road you would never imagine that someone would describe Nazism or fascism as government taking the middle road. Yeah. But it's exactly correct because I think actually like Nazism and like the philosophy behind it is not necessarily radical, but is actually like a base and instinctual like mode of political mm. like power that exists within all of us like you said like it is not radical it's not on either side of the aisle it's like inside every person's instincts that is a good point mm-hmm. because like democracy is not normal for human like d- people have to be taught democracy yeah. but like human beings mm-hmm. have a natural will to to to, to, to dictatorship so that does that makes sense yeah, yeah and to <laughs> destroy annihilate and to reform something in your own sense of what's right i mean that is the typical mode of operation for the human being like mm-hmm. nazism and fascism that's what like is created d- democracy exactly <laughs> right. yeah. democracy is unnatural yeah. and it's mm-hmm. it's awkward and it's malfunctioning but like fascism mm-hmm. is 
like the purest political thought that could ever exist. And it's so mm-hmm. difficult to admit these things and take them seriously because obviously we know what it leads to. And the horror of the play, of course, is, you know, Mishima understanding that this all spirals out into a nightmare beyond comprehension. And that context hovering over it gives these philosophical thoughts like the darkness required of the text. But it is very challenging to admit that we all have this fascist inside of our inside of our drives and i don't know what to do with it yeah cuz it, it's um there's like a civilization kind of works like an endless cycle uh-huh. of yes um t- taking like a, a landscape of ideology and t- destroying it and um completely annihilating it replacing it with something that is curated by your own personal philosophy or your own will to power. And then uh, eventually um, somebody comes along and, um, you know, the, the, the time uh, where you're, you're like on your center stage, that's, that's over. Uh, and someone else um, destroys you and puts themselves in your place. Um, it's a very, it's like the circle of life almost. Um, but, what is the great uniter is that we all feel alienated by um, the fact that nobody is listening to the fact that we're right and like everybody else is wrong. Like I, that is really the great uniter that, that we, there's this sensation and there's this uh, mental function that happens in us where it's like, I'm really onto something here mm-hmm. and everybody else can fuck off, you know? Um, and it feels good to like be, um, you know, justified by that. And it feels good to connect with other people who are like, yeah, yeah, you're right. I totally agree. And I'm like, I'm the most powerful person that's ever existed. So, um, yeah. And that, but then like that, the little line between like, oh, is, is this something I'm like titillated by? Is this something that's very uh, like nerve wracking or strange? Like it, it's, uh, it's the sensation, like that outcome of that is different for everyone. Mm. I I really like that he called the play My Friend Hitler because anytime that I would mention it to to people that I was coming on to do this, like they would like get quiet. Mm. And like, it's like, it's a very just provocative title and it really like captures the attention. And it's very, um, I just, yeah, I really like it. Yeah. The nature of the title is that you have to admit that Hitler is your friend whenever you acknowledge the play's existence. And when you have to say, My friend Hitler, you have no choice but to humanize him and give him the context that this play demands as a sexual human being with warped emotions around his comrades and friends. And, you know, for all the, the things the play does so well, I think, um, humanizing him and showing him as uh, merely an artist uh, that is affected by these relationships and his lust for artistry is what ultimately um, kind of ruins his angelic quality from like the first two acts. And I think that is worth noting for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. I think when I think of people who are so completely hyper-focused on their taste and what they think is right or wrong. There's some level of like respect for like committing to the bit and uh, having like your blinders on so much that, but also it's very scary. Mm. I don't know. Have you ever had a moment where like 
you felt almost um, sort of like shocked or uh, your expectations about your own influence has been like broken and you didn't know what it would feel like is that does that make sense like there mm. are times where i'm like uh does it i don't know if this feels good or bad but it's new and it's strange because like that means i had i did a job and there's no because i'm like the powerful person in the situation there's no one above me um and that's strange <laughs> yeah it is strange it is like this like the idea of fascism and Nazism is inherently that you are becoming somewhat like divine through your own willpower, like mm. in so violently uh, creating this dictatorship and just the idea of forcing an opinion or having influence, like you are experiencing something like divine. Right. And I have caught myself feeling, uh, way more powerful than I definitely am in, like, context of, like, the podcast and, um, like, with drag as well, and you're horrified and surprised to see, like, people kind of just, like, trotting along with whatever it is you have to say, um, even if it's something you didn't put too much thought into or were conscious of doing, and I've, I've definitely noticed that a few times that it makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> it's strange because yeah. when you see some when you notice somebody almost parroting uh, you or stepping in line to and mimicking uh, your sensibility, mm -hmm. um, there's a strange like outer out of body experience where now you're looking at yourself or your own uh, tastes and uh, sensibility um, outside of your own body. Mm -hmm. And you're like, that's lame. Like, I don't think <laughs> what, I created a monster. I'm a monster. Like I need to get out of like, um, it's something kind of also weird. Yeah. It's just, it's very strange. Cause I think everybody has a sense of like, I don't know what, what the hell, like I'm saying, but I just, we're social people, we're social animals and we just say things, mm -hmm. um, because we want to have strength in numbers. Like that is our, the main drive of uh, social life is to have strength in numbers. And I think once you, see like yourself having like being the main driver of like all these numbers that you accumulate um it's weird um because there's always a sense of like self self-loathing and like self-hate and then it does make you resent like people who um i don't know it's this is going down like a very strange path but um well, there's like a sense of like a loathing there too well, it's yeah, it reminds me so much of like Andy Warhol and Edie Sedgwick's relationship. Like he kind of like like he built her up and then he kind of just like left her to the wayside. And like that's kind of and as his star was kind of rising, you know, so it's like that's kind of what it it feels like sometimes. Yeah, I mean, this conversation mm -hmm. itself even feels like uh, like the play. It's like once you come into contact with these extremely unwieldy enormous ideas like it starts driving you into like the deepest pits of psychological mm. analysis and you can't help it yeah. when you're talking about these things and you start spiraling out well um one of the benefits of being a woman a woman a woman a woman is that um eventually i'll be i'll be able to like put those feelings somewhere onto my children uh -huh. <laughs> um, and it won't uh, have any real consequence on me uh, necessarily. Yeah, because I'm never um, going to be able and... to do anything useful with like my 
Holocaust drives because I'm a gay man mm-hmm. and it can only be deposited within the rectum to die. Yeah. <laughs> like, yep. So. But you also have art. Exactly. You also have art. Yeah. But then the true. more art you make and the more seriously you commit to it and the more destructive you become like Hitler, once again, the cycle repeats and it's become evil all over again. You know, but that's, I have but to, that's what's I good for society. To, mm. That's true. <laughs> I always have to like uh, have a moment where I'm like, all right, let's let's uh, come back down to earth, Maddie. You know, I always like to take a step back and say, this is just my little arts and crafts. I'm just truly doing little paper mache in my bedroom, having my peaceful alone time. Um, and other times uh, it just like escalates into like, I must make this the best show that's ever existed. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nobody better. Um, and then I have to be like, let's come back down to making my little arts and crafts. Yeah. The, where's <laughs> the balance? I don't know where to find it because I get... It's not. It's either one or the I other. I get so carried away yeah. all the time and uh, my urge to dominate the entire universe and turn it into what I want to see it as, like... Yes, it's admirable and it's good for society, but it's like one step away from Nazism. It's this close. You know, I don't have any plans for like ethnic cleansing or anything at this point, yeah. but it's like you uh-huh. see where once you're granted with that much power where it starts possessing you. Yeah, because uh, at, at some point somebody can get every single thing they want and they can be the best homemaker there ever was. And then they make the they make the best house there ever was and it's perfect in their eyes and then they expand into like a whole um neighborhood Mm -hmm. and it's very yeah it's very spooky um and it just sounds like that's when i'm like you know that this is a lot of work uh let's go back to the paper mache (laughs) you know um yeah it is true wow reflecting on all of this uh impulse towards art and understanding what it means to come close to fascism, I thought I would read uh, this particular monologue from Hitler that Josh actually mentioned, and he says, Rome said at least one thing that struck the right chord. He used to say, Ernst is a soldier, Adolf is an artist. Each time he he said it, I was angry. But as I think about it now, the word artist that he used with some pity begins to have far greater dimensions than his simple mind could have imagined. He had only dreams but no imagination, so he didn't notice that he was going to be killed, and he couldn't be completely cruel to others. His ears understood only army brass band music. He should have listened to Wagner more, as I do. He failed to grasp beauty, because he made no effort to do what is indispensable in creating beauty on this earth, that is, to know the root of the, of the beauty one perceives. Didn't you once tell me that it all depends on whether or not you can feel yourself as a storm? That is, to know why you are a storm, to know why you are so angry, why you are so dark, why you are so furious with so much wind and rain trapped inside you, why you are so great. That is not enough. Why you work so much destruction, try to fell giant rotten trees while making wheat grain, wheat fields fertile to revive, as with God's lightning, the faces of the young men emaciated by the Jews' neon signs, and to make all the German people taste a tragic sentiment through and through. That is my destiny.
Velkommen, bienvenue, welcome. Fremde, étranger, stranger. Glücklich, schlicht, zu sehen. Enchanté, je suis en... talking about Cabaret from 1972, directed by Bob Fosse and starring a particularly effervescent Liza Minnelli. And this is probably one of the most misunderstood films ever made um, because people don't take musical theater seriously. Uh, They don't understand that 
it can produce truly despondent, nightmarish pieces of scuzzy terror. They don't understand that this isn't a chorus line. I think everyone just <laughs> thinks that this is literally a chorus line. Um, and what it is, is a, a slow motion decay of Germany in real time as we watch the Weimar Republic slowly become possessed by the same phantasm of Nazism that we have been discussing in our own spirits. And, oh my god, this is such a disgusting film. There has never been anything as gross and terrifying and heartbreaking and truly unpleasant at times to watch than fucking cabaret um it, it is so real what is your two's backstory with this maddie i know you were in a production of it in college i was in a production of it in college and i we just when i did in college we just spent so much time with the text it was originally a novel mm-hmm. and then it was a musical and a a film and it's yeah play it, too. yeah play just anyway it just the it's very strange um when i just remember having a very vis- visceral like feeling i was a dancer in cabaret so i wasn't i didn't have any i just danced around and that's just all i did but um every single song i remember being on stage every night and having such a, a visceral um emo- like the emotion that comes out of every single song, the subject matter. Um, I feel that the the actual like dialogue is very secondary to the the music and the lyrics um, and the utter like horror <laughs> that that comes out of some of these songs um, and, and dance and sequences. Um, I I shudder. I shake in my boots every time I think about mm-hmm. it. Um, yeah. It is a very right. scary musical. Um, <laughs> what's I was just thinking, like my grandfather when I was so I was introduced to to cabaret when my grandfather I was staying with my grandparents in in a small town and he went to the local video store and he knew that I was interested in musicals and so he he rented cabaret for me not really knowing what it was about um, and I was like really really young. Um, and so it didn't really affect me or impact. I just remember it being like a fever dream when I first watched it. Mm-hmm. And then it wasn't until I got to high school and I became obsessed with the musical, the stage version. I was, I was watch. I would re- like repeatedly watch the Alan Cumming, uh, Don Moore, Don Moore Playhouse production. And that just like hit me in my soul. I was obsessed. The MC became like a dream role for me. Um, and then my sophomore year of high school in our choir class we have to do solos from musicals and i did a solo of um if you could see her out of context and i remember when i w- came to the line um did, did you know have... what it was about yes i had seen it oh, I, okay. <laughs> I, I get i sing it out of context for the, okay. the class and and they wait why did you they... sing it out of context for the class because I was singing it as a final, and I didn't, and I didn't explain to the class really what was going on in the show at that okay. point. And so, <laughs> so when I got to the line, she wouldn't look Jewish at all. They all burst out laughing, and so at, at the time, I was it was very disturbing. But I, like now, I give them the, the benefit of the doubt. Like they didn't really know, but it was it was very unsettling. <laughs> this is, this is a strange, unsettling like I know, I know situation my, that you described. 
And then my senior year, I I sang I Don't Care Much as a final solo. Mm -hmm. And it, beautiful. Yeah, it's it's a musical that has just stuck with me over time. And I, I love that it shows um, how decadence can go awry. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Because obviously we're all quite, you know, pagan little fanatics and uh, mm -hmm. lean into the decadent and the homosexual perversions of the world, uh, that being, you know, my number one passion. But this movie is so right for its slowly rotting fruit quality of the gross decadence in the Kit Kat Club. And it doesn't blame or shame any of the characters for getting sucked up into the vortex. It feels so naturalistic and true that it wins over for me in comparison to almost any other film like depicting decadence as, you know, something mm -hmm. evil because it feels so natural. Like, I really can't talk about this movie very well because it, it really disturbs me. I watched it, like, for the first time, I think, in high school with my mom. And, you know, it kind of went over my head as well. But then when I revisited it in college and um, after Jack did a really great episode about it, I think uh, maybe a year and a half ago, going back through it, it really just gets under my skin. Um, I guess to introduce, oh, like, the plot... Yeah. It takes place in 1931 Berlin. Uh, Sally Bowles is an American uh, artist. She is dreaming of becoming an actress, and she performs at the Kit Kat Club. Uh, she falls in love with a new tenant in in her house that she lives in, and uh, that's basically the whole plot. There's not a lot mm -hmm. here. It really is yeah, just the pattern. Yeah, it's very kind of... It's simple. It's very simple. It, the whole... I always felt that the whole uh, goal of Cabaret is to alienate the audience and oh, yeah. isolate you and horrify you. And I think I just, only because I have uh, such a personal connection to the musical, uh, the stage show, mm -hmm. I have just like most recently come to the, the, come to the conclusion that uh, the movie actually uh, achieves the musical's like goal much much better because it's very scary the musical uh the show is very much more jovial and hospitable and celebratory mm -hmm. but the the movie isolates you much much more and i think joel gray's mc actually does a much better job uh, because you feel like this person could possibly kill you in your sleep mm -hmm. um and he's very frightening he's like a scary sickly clown um yeah. and that it, it it's like very very spooky and i really like i always like that um this this story is kind of a liminal i guess mm -hmm. it, it is sort of like the the threshold of desire sally bowles is this character who everybody wants to be but she's so uh miserable um i almost feel like uh sally and the uh, brian character um they have this relationship and on some level i do feel like the brian character is that his name yeah. yes um, yeah, in the, in the movie, yeah. In the movie, yeah. Um, I feel like his attraction toward 
her is because he envies her on some level. He wants to be like this free spirited guy who's like gay and out and like about and like confident in his sexuality. And, um, and on the other end, you know, he'll eventually have to uh, reckon with the, the parts of maybe that lifestyle that um, is miserable and, and isolating. Mm-hmm. And everybody's very, every character is very isolated. And the um, the songs um, are isolated from the plots and um, but still evoke the, the themes of uh, kind of alienation. And that's what I really like. It's very consistent the movie is very consistent yeah and it kind of goes back to like what Polly says about the diet like she has that line like the dionysian is no cakewalk or walk in the park or whatever uh-huh. walk, yeah and it is so true and and um sally bowles is kind of very upfront though about it like even in mine hair she says like you're better off without me you know i'm i'm not the uh, she's like and although i used I'm to an care, old bag I need, <laughs> I need the open air like she mm-hmm. really she really is an open spirit, but then she she meets Brian and she thinks that she can like mesh the two worlds. But mm-hmm. I, I think like Brian isn't ready to commit to that world, and he needs I mean, he needs structure. Whereas like she doesn't need it at all. And um and you know she made her mind up back in Chelsea when she goes she's <laughs> going like Elsie. So oh my God, is Sally Bowles just not one of the most riveting? filmic creations of all time mm-hmm. you're both mm-hmm. so right that she is fascinatingly you know decadent and glamorous and just spilling over with like glitter on every every frame of the movie but inside of that like sparkling like diva character you can see this enormous black hole of emptiness and tragedy and mm-hmm. it's so easy to relate with as, like, I kept like, feeling like this. I'm like, is this what it's like when I'm, like, lip-syncing at a drag gig? Is it, like, me being, like, Sally Bowles? Like, I feel like mm-hmm. drag... The little top hat. With the little top hat, <laughs> the, the bottom <laughs> lashes that are so intense yeah. and scary. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like when you watch a good drag queen perform, of course, you get that first uh, superficial like layer of like quote beauty unquote and like glamour and then you get kind of the disgust and horror of like the gender mocking but the lips are like flying exactly but then the the very (laughs) deepest layer is you see the tragedy of the gay man at play and you see the longing and tragedy and i have only seen this recreated with liza minnelli in this movie i have never seen it anywhere else yes because she like supplant she supplants that love with like superstar like she wants to be an actress mm-hmm. she wants to be famous and mm-hmm. she tries and she thinks that the Kit Kat club is going to give that to her you know she mm-hmm. she's always like yearning that that's that so, she'll be discovered and that she'll become famous but mm-hmm. and and she thinks that brian is going to give her some sense of happiness and but then max the comes. billionaire yeah max yes. the billionaire comes and like she maybe gets like some sense of happiness there and what i really like about like max's impact on the plot is you can see like Brian being like jealous that Max is like uh, spoiling Sally and like giving her all of this attention. And he's not only is uh, Brian like envious of uh, who Sally is, but he's also envious and like jealous that Max is not, um, you know, spoiling him. Mm -hmm. Like not only does Brian wants to be Sally Bowles in 
character, but he also wants to be Sally Bowles in in her position, Sally Bowles' position to be, um, you know, at the the subject of a man's desire. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's something that's like very, very powerful that is also comes very, um, it's very visceral in the movie. It's kind of about like a desire um, that can never be fulfilled, like a a longing that can uh, never, a thirst that can never be quenched, Mm -hmm. you know? it's very it's very sad (laughs) and there's the great scene where sally and brian are having their little fight and brian tells sally that he slept with max as well Mm -hmm. and then she's like oh you monster like how could you and like liza minnelli herself has always like has that inner turmoil as well of like always being attracted to gay men and Oh, you just really, you feel for her. You got to. <laughs> I mean, she's just so brilliantly cast. I love, like, the textural mm-hmm. detail of, like, her just being, like, Judy Garland's daughter. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. You feel like she was mm-hmm. destined to, like, play this part. It's this amalgamation mm-hmm. of so much, like, old Hollywood culture, like, exploding in this one tragic star god and the fact that she doesn't get her way and is like doomed to be at the Kit Kat club like forever like in purgatory mm-hmm. it's like oh my god so it real. literally is purgatory, it is purgatory. it's just yes. weird like oh wait i'm gonna send actually i have a screenshot of okay so you know the song um tomorrow belongs to me yeah. which is like the spookiest song ever that sends a chill up your spine um so when we did it in my i mean People do this differently every in every production, uh-huh. but when we did it in at my college, we like everybody on stage like sang the song, and then like the final refrain, the tempo like slows down, and everybody goes "Tomorrow belongs to me," and then we had like three gigantic banner like Nazi banners with like the big gigantic red everything uh-huh. that flooded like the whole back of the stage <laughs> wait I think I can send it oh yeah here it is and there's a great in the Alan Cumming production <laughs> he like flashes his ass with uh, a swastika on it mm-hmm. tattooed on it and it's wonderful wow it's it's so scary mm. it's so scary and like that's the fr- that's the end of the first act oh. so it literally is like, oh, it's a fun little song. And then slowly but surely, it's like, ooh, the little cracks, like something is wrong here. And then all of a sudden, like very slowly, like <laughs> these like gigantic, disgusting, horrifying, like ter- like terrible, like red flags, like unfur- unfurl. And the audience is like, oh my God, like <laughs> it's very, very strange. Um, and it's like meant to like just shock and jar and Uh, Everybody thinks it's going to be like the grand finale to the first act. Um, And then like the lights dim um, and then you're like, oh, shit. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and that's the great thing about like Cabaret is that it's it does everything that a musical should not do, you know, and Mm -hmm. it was very revolutionary for its time. You know, it it was very debaucherous like that. That is the thing. It's like it was shocking to people. And. And it will, it, I don't know. I mean, it, we just can won't. you imagine seeing this in 1972? Like, oh my God, it's shocking. I was still like disgusted. I can't imagine. I mean, this was a huge smash hit success. Like, and it made so mm-hmm. much money. Like, the fact that everyone was just ambiently processing, like, Nazism 
by means of Liza Minnelli in 1972 is unbelievable to me. It's so great. And Tomorrow Belongs to You is maybe the most horrifying filmic moment of all time. It begins with this uh, very beautiful Aryan Hitler youth um, just looking like the idol of all like German beauty and he sings this Nazi propaganda song that uh, begins, <laughs> at, uh, you know, as a as an ode to nature and youth. Very and, patriotic. Yes. Yeah. And it's it's very delicate. And then as more and more like stodgy, like fat faced, like little children begin to start like barking the lyrics with him, it is sickening. Mm-hmm. And the, the moment where the guy is like sitting there and he's just like the Jewish man and all these people are standing up around him and singing and he's just sitting there really quiet and it's haunting. It's it's so it's so it's so scary. It's so <laughs> scary. This movie gets exactly correct the way that the, the fucking Holocaust was like this static. It's like this static in the background of everything. It's easier to imagine it and reduce it just to the gas chambers and concentration camps and to, you know, the science experiments they did on, you know, concentration camp members. Mm-hmm. Like, it's easy to isolate it into its, like, most extreme horrors. But when you process it as, like, the slow-motion, long-form static, like the drone that amounts in something like Tomorrow Belongs to You, you know, oh my god, that is exactly, exactly right. Yeah, and I always feel like when I think about this song, I think about how the specter of the future, or how you feel... How, mm. how you feel tomorrow should be in your in your eyes uh eventually sets you or someone else up for like disappointment or heartbreak um because you know who who are we to say what tomorrow should be and like what it should look like um because that is going to implicate somebody else always mm-hmm. um and the and t- tomorrow yeah tomorrow belongs to to, to me, to, to you, to like, it's very, uh, it's meant to like isolate the one, the one yeah. person who's, who's singing it. Um, and it, it's, yeah, it's meant to sort of, um, yeah, to basically uh, overpower you and uh, s- step on your neck, kind of. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, what is go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. <laughs> uh, well, and what's so shocking after that scene is then we get this performance piece of the the Jew lying dead in the street mm. and they drive past and it's it's so scary and, and Bob Fosse like does that in a lot of his films where like they'll just like be like frozen and you just like study it and the camera is so sharp and and it's 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 brutal it is I want to talk a little bit about the Kit Kat Club. Uh, The purgatory of the Holocaust that's unfolding as the static in the background of all of this is unmatched by the nightmare of the fucking Kit Kat Club. The... It basically, like, serves as this, like, liminal, um, like, transition between the events of the film and, like, this uh, strange musical theater tradition of extrapolating on one's feelings through song um but it's shot (laughs) with like an 
the, the camera's always like looking up. It's always like staring mm-hmm. upwards. I really like that. And so you feel very trapped and accosted by the songs that are performed here. And they feel very schmaltzy, very, you know, German in a in a kind of campy way. But the performance yeah. of the MC elevates it from just like something kitschy and uncomfortable into like actual inferno and nightmare. Mm-hmm. It's those eyes. It's the eyes. It's like such piercing it's eyes. eyes. It's the lip line. Okay. Yes. It's the, the lip line. It's the, cu- the it's the Cupid's bow. Oh I'm my God. Yes. Joel it's so Gray good. is a master when I, um, of When I was in it, uh, we had to do the drag thing, uh, the drag queen thing, where we put the um, glue stick over our eyebrows, which was very hard for me, mm-hmm. of course, um, and put the thing. I have a, another photo of it somewhere, but... Um, we all had to learn how to do that. Um, just like put the glue and like put the very skinny eyebrow, the very terrifying sharp eyebrow on our um, foreheads. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's the, the the makeup. And you know, I, I really love uh, Liza Minnelli's, um, her, I mean, in the spirit of Ju- Judy Garland, mm-hmm. you know, her forward facial posture, her lips mm-hmm. are just like flying out into like out of the screen and like the her like a bravado mm. just like comes out of her body <laughs> so with such power um and it is very it's it, there's a lot of lamenting like sally is a very sad sad character mm. um like you want like every single character like you want to be them but you don't want to be them. They want to be someone else. They want to be uh, their their opposite character. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like this strange like game of like longing to be another person and that person longing to be you. Um, I feel like all the characters like want to trade places with each other. Yeah, in some way, that's definitely the case. And the musical format is what lets that psychological richness like come out and oh of course maybe this time is probably the song most people will be able to recognize it's been on like glee and stuff which yeah it's so <laughs> funny because if you didn't know what this is from you would have no idea about like the mc or all of like the d- revolting stuff happening in the mm-hmm. background and what makes that song feel so impassioned and alive yeah mm-hmm. like it's it's sally's i want song mm-hmm. you know it's her yeah. it's her big her big moment and you really get the optimism of her yeah the glimmer know. of hope of what could be yeah, um, but it pro- but she I think instinctually she probably knows that it's never going to be. But she really likes the fantasy. Yeah, because she is very in the song. She's very conscious about how she's very dejected, um, and she will never be like she, she can just never be anything other than what she is now. And like, there's no way out. But there's a little tiny glimmer of hope in the distance. A sparkling in the form of this, uh, you know, ephemeral gay man that's entered her life. Um, very, yeah, very strange. Very strange. I also, mm-hmm. go ahead, John. I also really, I also really like um, the relationship that Sally has with the MC. It's very like playful and like the moment where he like 
sticks his tongue at her and then he she sticks it back like i'm just like very i I would like to know more like i want to see more of their relationship and like what they were doing together you know backstage Mm -hmm. you know what does the mc signify to you what is his role what does he mean because it's easy to just be afraid of him and kind of shiver but it's so much more than that i think he almost um, seems like an angel of death, mm-hmm. almost. Because, like, it kind of reminds me of in All That Jazz, where his character is, like, looking, or sp- he has this, like, limbo state dream world where he's, like, talking to Jessica Lang uh-huh. as the angel of death. Um, and so he kind of just seems like, um, in this particular film, he f- seems like a uh kind of angel of death but i've seen other productions where he at the end like he reveals like he's he's really just a, a performer he's a you know mm-hmm. a showman and then at the end like it's revealed that he is going to a concentration camp and then he like throws himself onto a barbed wire fence and kills himself and it's just <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah just Absolutely. I mean, and that's why, and, and that is the Sam Mendes Alan Cumming production, and it's mm-hmm. on YouTube if anybody wants to mm-hmm. watch it. But, and that's what I was like obsessed with in high school. And so, like, yeah. And I, so I, I like, that's why I really like the, the Alan Cumming Sam Mendes production, because I feel, I felt like there was this very like human element of the MC that we hadn't seen before. Mm. Um, yeah. I, I always, feel like the MC is somebody who like embodies uh something or someone who enters your life or something that we we face that is tempting us to um bargain um our soul away for something that we want um because there's something very seductive about him he's trying to seduce the audience he's mm. trying to invite you in to the Kit Kat Club, um, but he's also sort of warning you in in a way. Like there's a lot of like strange, uh, very ambiguous lines that he has, um, and also, yeah, he he's kind of somebody you want to sell your soul to. And then at the end, it's like this very um, like uh, he's kind of almost saying like, okay, now you're you're done, like you're dying now, um, and like very slowly in acapella saying like a biento like goodbye <laughs> like you're you're i'm going away now um but yeah i think he's like a spooky like demon clown who's like somebody who is um trying to tempt you um with like er- earthly desires and trying to distract you from your values um, and isolate you from everything you knew before. Um, yeah, like the like outside. Outside is so cold, but inside, in here, it's so hot. Yes, because um, it's hell. <laughs> like the lyrics in like Vilkelman is like when he's saying like, "Oh, forget about everything else outside of this room. Like, forget about your every worry. Forget about how poor you are. Forget about absolutely everything, and submerge yourself one hundred percent in this dream world." Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's like the little evil demon that's like (laughs) whispering into my ears and like on my shoulder. And it's like, yes, like, um, and yeah, and it's weird because um, certain MCs, I'm like, 
why is this guy like weirdly, why am I weirdly turned on? It's that strange mm. uh, sensation when you um, like are accosted by someone or something where you're confused, but strangely you're turned on mm. by it. Um, that's kind of what I feel Joel Gray's uh, MC does very yeah. well, because that is truly what the MC is supposed to do. Um, just like I isolate you completely. Uh, and like brainwash you almost. Mm. Well, and what's so shocking to me is that Bob Fosse and Joel Gray didn't get along during the filming yeah. of this movie. And Joel Gray was almost not in this movie. And the MC was almost not in this movie. So like, I can't imagine this movie without the MC. Like, it's, Yeah, it's you too... can almost tell. Like he's almost like, it's almost better for the movie because when I think about it, you can almost see him like performing this out of spite. Yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah. If they're like, on like the fifth, yeah. yeah. If they're on like the fiftieth take or whatever, the performance of the day, is and really like, spiteful. Actually, that is a, a is. very good observation, and oh, it feels so biting and cruel. And I literally cannot unsee the fucking Tiller Girls song when he has the the two women with him, I believe, um, and. Mm -hmm. uh, when they are like doing that choreography in the sheets and then he comes out in his underwear, it is disgusting. Mm -hmm. I do not mm -hmm. want to think about his dick at all. It's, <laughs> I feel like you would take his pants off and it would be like spiders and knives and like barbed wire would mm -hmm. be th down there. Yeah. The MC makes me feel about like the time uh, in the, an, at the end of a night out when your eyebrows start to like crack through the glue stick mm. on your face. And like, there's a little like crack of like uh, black hair that's like coming up from um, beneath your makeup. Yeah. And it's like, oh God, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's how I feel when I think of him. And it's all this like passageway like into a universe where sexuality is completely unbridled. Um, Mm -hmm. If, you know, you think this is shocking in 1972, like, imagining that this kind of performance could ever take place in 1931 seems unheard of. And, oh my god, this world is so unglued and unmeshed, it's just, like, people's libidos oozing into one another, it's the most basic human instincts on display, it's money, 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 money. <laughs> I really like that the audience, the audience in the, I mean, I feel like the audience, yeah, doesn't exist in the movie. And like in the Kit Kat Club, they're very like, they're very secondary. You don't really get a sense of ambiance in the Kit Kat Club a lot. It's like the, the dance sequence, like money, it's very, it like really isolates the two performers. Like any, anything, any, like dancer, any musical number in the movie like, is very yeah. You only um, like see like the back you know, of their heads for the most part, and it's because the yeah. movie in its act of aggression towards you, where it is deliberately diminishing you and trying to intimidate you, it shoves you very firmly as an audience member into the Kit Kat Club, looking up at that stage. Well, mm -hmm. and what's so interesting is that it starts with this blurry the mirror. mirror. Mm -hmm. Wait. And then I'm thinking, like, that's Bob Fosse trying to be like, we are in this, you know, like, we, the audience, are actually in the Kit Kat Club. And that at the end, like, when the MC is saying, you know, goodbye, 
Mm-hmm. And then it shows the Nazis all sitting in the audience. And I'm wondering <laughs> if that is Bob Bossy's way of, of showing how Nazism is within us all, you know, because it's on a mirror, you know, mm-hmm. it's like a mirror back to us. Yes, this is exactly what I was thinking. And why I decided to pair these two together is because I feel like they both do exemplarily well in demonstrating how the Holocaust is not actually a historical event. It's not a moment in history. What it is, is it's an impulse that resides within every human being on Earth. You are Mm -hmm. the Holocaust. Like, it is you. And when you're sitting in the Kit Kat Club and you're letting all of your instincts, like, spin out into this swamp of feeling and human urges, of course, Nazism rears its ugly head there and suddenly everyone around you is decked out with swastika armbands. Yeah, it kind of forces you to gaze into the Holocaust within that you've created, like some we create in ourselves um, sometimes uh, and how we bring uh, others down with it. Um, A lot of this is about the kind of the tactile feeling of like envy Mm -hmm. and like being the center of it, being the center of attention um, and being the um, object of your own desire um, by virtue of being the object of somebody else's desire as well. And like that is, that really comes through with the, the relationship between the the characters, even though the plot is like very simple and kind of boring. um, I think the simplicity of, the characters and how just archetypal mm-hmm. they are. Um, it makes it very, uh, very clean. Um, like not, uh, not very fussy in that. I think that was what you can't really get as much in the musical and the actual um, show because it's like, it's very communal. Um, it's more like jovial and like happy times, a lot of movement and um, the, the movie cabaret is just much more starkly a black hole of uh, like being embarrassed by your own uh, senses, your own earthly desires, um, in your own mortality. Um, and that, yeah, I think mortality also, it was also what is really like spooky about this is like the pregnancy aspect. Mm. Uh, mm. uh, when Sally Bowles is like, I'm not going to keep the baby. Like, I, I'm going to, like, cancel this pregnancy altogether. Um, it's That is very, very strange. Because she almost is, like, enacting, like, this will to end another life within her. Um, even though she was singing, like, maybe this time I'll be lucky. Um, maybe this time he'll stay. Technically, he did. Somebody stay, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's that, about the the cost. It's about the cost of exactly. Um, yeah, getting what you want. Yeah. It's about yeah, money. Yeah, those things. Because yeah, the, the this time when I was watching Cabaret, at the end when she sings the title song, she like turns around and it's just like a, a light, you know, yeah. and, and, and there's a black backdrop. So it's like she's like facing the void of nothingness, you know, and she's like trapped there, you know, forever. Yeah, she's entombed mm-hmm. in the Kit Kat Club. Yes. And 
life like from cradle to tomb isn't that long a stay you know and it's so the pregnancy and abortion aspect also really deeply disturbed me because Mm -hmm. when she's like looking into the eyes of like brian and trying to stomach the fact that she might just end up going back to england where or go to england with him i mean and have this domestic life of, you know, sweetness and simplicity. And Mm -hmm. then she starts getting, like, these visions of, like, her in, like, the club. And it's this manically edited, like, fever dream of just, like, shots of her, like, alone there. And the shots, like, repeat and cut at strange moments. And you see her get dragged right back into the Chthonian Kit Kat swamp where she will never be able to escape. Yeah, well, because I think she always had the hope that she would be discovered at the Kit Kat Club. And if she goes to England, then she loses that. I mean, she has this sense of comfort, it seems mm. like, at the Kit mm-hmm. Kat Club. A sense of assurance that something could happen, you know, at any moment. And I think that's exciting to her. It would be exciting to me, too. I mean, that's how I felt when I worked mm-hmm. at that bar in Nagoya. Like, I felt mm. like anything could happen, you know. I didn't know who was going to come in the doors. You know, I'm, like, sitting there, like, serving drinks and smoking and talking all night. And it's so... It's so much more preferable than, you know... I'm a diamond in the rough. Exactly. I'm, you know, (laughs) I feel like her as, like, a foreigner, like, trying to, like, make my life as, like, glamorous as possible. And, um, you know, if someone was to, like, walk up to me and say, okay, like, let's get married and, you know, settle down and, you know, I'll I'll provide a life for you, I would never be able to do it right now. I feel like her. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Wait, so, wait, you feel like you would never be able to do it because you're like more drawn towards your um, own like life, like working in your like artistic life. I guess that's definitely part of it. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm too um, attracted towards extremity and like brazen life experiences that Mm -hmm. calming down and relaxing doesn't seem like it's on the table for me. Like I'm sure in 10 years or something, my life will be different, but Currently, I have, like, the urge to, like, do Kit Kat Club, like, every week. That's that's how I am every single day as well. And I'm very, I'm a very rebellious person. And I, God bless my husband, because <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of like that girl who is, like, stumbling out of the club and will be, like, shitting on my partner when I'm, like, so drunk. I'm like, you can't fucking tell me what to do. Uh, every, like, but it feels, it feels good. Yeah, I do the do same thing. Things. Unfortunately, I'm like, that's just how I am. Um, I'm very, uh, not reactionary in an ideological uh, way, but more in like a situational way Uh where I'm just like, I, I do these things. um, You know, I'm like, oh, I'm held down by the banal anchors of the world. And I just got to burst through and let loose and nobody can can tell me what the fuck to do. I think that's why this movie is so Um, disturbing to me is because, like, it (laughs) reads me down filth. Like, it's it's dragging me. Like, it knows that, you know, this impulse, like, towards, like, fame and glamour and Dionysian, Mm -hmm. you know, world, blah, you know. Eyelash glue. Eyelash glue (laughs) and Mm. mascara, like, all of it. And you want to spin out more and more into it. But the thing is, is that if you don't, like, learn how to create balance in your life what's going to happen is that you'll be looking around at the audience in front of you and you will be surrounded by genocide and death 
Because if you can't cap the instincts inside of you for this kind of mania, then it inevitably leads to genocide, Nazism, and annihilation of life. Yeah. And I, and yeah, I think that that's something yeah. that we have to the learn The abortion aspect. <laughs> mm. Wait, Josh, what like, did you say? We're gonna, I think that that's something that like we'll have to continually uh, yeah. like learn in ourselves about mm -hmm. is, is, is like how to and con and not be afraid to uh, critique ourselves mm -hmm. and not be afraid mm -hmm. to course correct if we have to you know and that i think that that's the only way that one can find balance yeah because hitler clearly didn't if we look at you know my friend hitler like reading mm -hmm. that through he wasn't able to balance um like the human element that gave him so much respect and like love for his friends he wasn't able to cling on to that so he spun out into the sally bowles annihilation you know worldview and was never able to reconcile it and he accomplished a great feat of humanity one of the greatest horrors of all time but it's like if you want to like live a, a dignified life that is you know peaceful and satisfying and doesn't result in just abject death then you have to resist these impulses a little bit somehow but mm -hmm. to sally ball's credit i do feel like she she tried commits to yeah she, yeah, she tried and, and she commits she really to she commits to her choices mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. she and she didn't blame brian she brought brian into her world but i mean yeah she allowed they needed him, each other they were like she the allowed him to each way other. out yeah you know mm -hmm. and i think that that i so in that sense, I do respect her. I respect Bowles. her. I mm -hmm. respect her yeah. so much. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my heart breaks seeing her in the one lone piercing light alone with her face quivering as she resigns to this endless cycle. Ugh. And the mirror just shakes and everything comes to a finale. Oh, my God. It's just too much for me. <laughs> do you think that the MC dies at the end? Because he doesn't finish those lines. That's a good question. I kind of interpreted just up and leads. It, it, I interpreted it as like this. It's like <laughs> the same thing at the end of the Suspiria remake when Dakota mm -hmm. Johnson is making the audience try to forget what they've seen, but it can't be forgotten. He can't end yeah. the show. He can't finish Cabaret because this emotional process and these horrifying instincts are going to continue raining on us for the rest of time. He just claps his um, hands two times, and a big puff of smoke like comes up and like disappears until further notice. Mm. Because historically, <laughs> like cabaret performers were thrown into the camps, and they were used for Nazi propaganda in films. And mm -hmm. so that's that, that's why I really also really enjoy the Sam Mendes production because it kind of like alludes to that mm -hmm. kind of story that of, of that future mm -hmm. for the MC. What do you think happened to Sally yeah. after this? Well, the Sally that it's based on, the person that Sally's based on did survive. Uh -huh. I, I do remember reading about that. So I think she probably, I don't know. In this in this iteration, I feel like she probably did end up getting thrown into a camp. I don't I know. So either that or she... <laughs> I don't want to say it. <laughs> well, yeah, I think either that or she has, she comes down with some kind of old-fashioned STD of oh, yes. some sort oh. that they don't yet have medicine for and probably just withers away um, like the trooper she is. 
mm. and has some sort of, I feel like she dies with some dignity. Mm. I think... In some way. <laughs> looking back at My Friend Hitler and Cabaret together, um, we've really come to understand that we are the Holocaust. These instincts are undividable from our human spirits, and I don't know quite yet what to do about that and what the process is to acknowledge it and turn it into something that's not evil while also pursuing like my artistic interests and my dreams of fame and stardom like I still have to figure out like how to apply it and what to do with it but I think you know looking at it we can we can see it all very clearly mm-hmm if yeah and that <laughs> if you if, if you could see her through my <laughs> 